0: Bald is beautiful, too. I just just asked him to put that up. I'm kidding, all right? So thanks for the two laughs on that one. But uh, um, I do want to tell you, like, in this, the way the kingdom works is very much a relational economy. Very much a relational economy. And so trust is the currency. So when you see from your lead pastor and talks about the transparency of budget and where your money goes and where dollars are spent like that That in this cultural moment when you see fallen leaders and see some of these movements that things are coming out from 30 years ago you can't put a price tag on that kind of transparency and so i would implore you if this has not been an act of worship for you as a follower of Jesus and as one who is partnering with what God is doing here through Journey, like I would just challenge you and implore you to really begin a conversation with God and to see where he wants you to take that next step. Because it really does, uh, man, it, it just it makes an impact on the community that I know everyone here loves. And so I'm going to ask you to do something, if you would, and you're able to. Would you please stand, and I'm just going to read the scripture for us. Love hearing that sound. John 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, or beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of this morning. Thanks for the gift of your word and your word promises that it will not return void, but would go about and bear much fruit. And so whatever it is that we come in here with today, Father, I pray that we leave here better. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the season of Advent is marked with longing or waiting, not yet satisfied. We wait eagerly. We remember this feeling as a child, like on Christmas Eve, and this Christ child taps into that inner child in each of us. You remember waiting uh, you remember wondering what tomorrow is going to bring, and so that night you waited eagerly. Now, here's the question I'm curious about this morning: Is what do you want this Christmas from this Christ child? What do you want this Christmas from this Christ child? My favorite Christmas moment was when I was in high school and my family was in the very back row of the church and we were celebrating Christmas Eve. And we're in the very back row, the church is packed, and the church was singing Silent Night. And it gets to the line, round yon virgin mother with child, and my mother missed the sacred pause in that moment. Now, her voice was less than angelic, and she belts that line out all by herself. Now, my best friend was on the front row with his family, and he comes back at the end of the service, and he called my mom, Mama Mo, and he comes up to Mama Mo and he says, Mama Mo, the, the Round Yon Virgin got you this time, didn't it? And she was mortified, and I thought, this is the most fantastic moment I have ever experienced. <laughs> And to this day, it's my favorite. Um, God breaks the silence with this young, round virgin, crying out in birth pains as the Christ child is born. You see, the pain of childbearing was not alleviated for this young mother. God comes in the middle of real life in the form of this God child. The silence is broken. You see, John tells us a story. God gave us a story. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He becomes like us so we can become like him. And this is what story does. It opens us up to a new reality, a deeper reality. It's what stories of redemption do. The darkness is pushed back and the light comes into the world and we beheld his glory. I recently heard this marketing slogan, we belong To the beautiful beauty is in the eyes of the beholder we have all heard this before you see there is an appetite in each of us for the beautiful that remains unsatisfied we cling to lesser satisfactions we cling to the beautiful body we click the beautiful image we chase the beautiful trend and we change for the beautiful appearance And this is the reality that we live in. You see, we live in a pristine, perfect, Instagram kind of world that wants to detach beauty from blemish. And this, too, is our temptation. Beauty must go beyond the appearance. We long for something of substance to occupy this increasingly large appetite for beauty. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah, 600 years prior to Christ being born, describes the Christ child. Isaiah 53 verse 2 writes this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You see, beauty has to go beyond the appearance. What is beauty? And who decides what is beautiful? You see, the eyes of the beholder must be healed. But who is responsible for this healing? Well, Pastor John tells us, we beheld his glory or we beheld the beholder. This is learning to see beauty in the broken. Kintsugi is this Japanese art that I know Jeremy has talked about before of repairing broken pottery with a lacquer mixed with gold dust or powder. You see, it's beauty in the broken. The gold dust lacquer is the very salve that holds the broken shards of pottery together. Each piece of pottery tells the story of redemption, seeing beauty in the broken. Russian philosopher Dostoevsky writes in his classic novel, The Idiot, beauty will save the world beauty will save the world but what beauty will save us what beauty will put us back together you see john wants to unlock a memory in his first century audience to recall the first creation story in the beginning is the way the Bible begins on the very first page of Scripture. But you see, there are two creations account on, this, on the first two pages of the Bible. Chapter 1 reads as if you went to order your drink at Starbucks and you get to the end of the counter just to pick it up. All right, That's the way chapter 1 reads. But chapter 2 allows you to get behind the counter with the barista, and it gives you just a bit more finer detail as to how the drink is made. And that's the way both of those read. In fact, in Genesis 2, verse 7, the author writes this Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, think about this for a moment. One, the man was outside of Eden, as the very next verse tells us in verse 8. It says, And the Lord planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, why does that matter? Because we live outside of Eden right now in the chaos, or what John now calls darkness. It wasn't really until some of the prophets, and then John picks up on this, that darkness became equated with evil. But in the beginning, darkness was just a part of the day, or the evening in that case. And so we have to hold Scripture and the world news hand in hand because he longs to put the world back together again. This is the story of Advent. This is the story of Advent. The commercial has it right. We do belong to the beautiful. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Think about this. The very first face that Adam saw when he opened his eyes was the face of God. The very first breath that he breathed was the very breath of God. He inhales God's breath. The very first exhale was God's breath. It was an act of worship. God getting on his hands and knees, forming the man, speaks to a very intimate and intentional process. This kind of attention is an act of love. God puts his hands into the dust to form man. He breathes life into the man's nostrils. This is what one article calls ontological tenderness. Tenderness is God's state of existence. Listen to me. God's heart does not harden. It's just who he is. The world exists only because it was loved into creation. He didn't need this world. He had community within the the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But this is how God operates. So it's out of love that this world is created, and you and I exist only because we are deeply loved. The psalmist writes this, Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This word gaze is the same word for beheld or contemplate in the original language. John picks up on this with we beheld his glory, we contemplated his glory. It makes us pause. What is beauty? Well, beauty or the beautiful provokes something or someone with intense pleasure, yet longing or wanting more. I want more of that. It is learning to fix our eyes upon the one that is the very essence of beauty. At the end of each day, God says of his creation, What? It is good. It is good. And up until studying for this sermon, truly, had I not realized that the original language there, the adjective that is used in the Hebrew, is actually translated, It is beautiful. And he gets to the creation of man, and he says, it is very beautiful. And then almost overnight, this beautiful creator, this intentional creator, becomes a wounded artist. His most prized creation chooses to cling to a lesser beauty symbolized in the fruit. It's a longing or a wanting that's not yet satisfied. We long to gaze upon the beautiful one again. You see, they have to exit Eden. They were brought into Eden. They had to exit Eden now. Into the chaos. We desire for the darkness to be pushed back and for the light to break through. You see, the human eye does not perceive objects, but only the light reflected from the objects. It is the light that forms the object for our eyes to see. The artist sees what others may not see at first glance. He or she helps us see beauty. The photographer takes the photograph but immediately gets to work because what she has is merely a shadow of what is to come. She has to immediately get to work in what? The dark room. If the film is exposed too quickly, it is ruined. But she's patient. You see, this is the slow work of new creation. Please don't miss this. The work is done in the dark room. The darkness cannot overcome the life, the light. My life is this light-sensitive film that requires the artist to begin his redemptive work. Where? In the dark room. God's not afraid of the dark. We are. That's the truth. It is learning to see the beautiful one In the dark. Advent is seeing God through the pain of the diagnosis. Advent is seeing God through the pain of bad decisions. Advent is seeing God through the pain of the divorce. Advent is seeing God through the pain of death. Advent is beginning to see God through the tears. Beauty provokes a longing or a wanting. We want what we once had. And many of us desperately want things to go back to the way they used to be. The wounded artist does not detach himself from this broken world. The wounded artist binds himself to this wounded world. He willingly puts his hands deep into the earth again and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory. We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to bathe in it. This is where the eyes of the beholder need to be healed. Beauty cannot be detached from the broken. Our perception of the beauty of the beautiful is contingent on our proximity to the beautiful. Beauty will captivate you, beauty will cost you, but beauty will change you. I remember seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time and it does indeed captivate you, but it also terrifies you at the same moment. I don't know what it is. When I get on the edge of a cliff, I always picture myself taking a jump. I don't know what that is, but it shoots a feeling through my body as if I can survive the thing or what. But, but that's the way the Grand Canyon is, and it's one of those that you can sit on the edge or you can stand on the edge and you can just take a picture and walk away. Or you say, I'm ready to take a hike. I'm ready to climb down into this canyon and get everything that I can get. And it will certainly cost you, but you will never be the same. And this is how Jesus approaches many, many of the people that he encounters. He sees something beautiful with such depth and so much to explore that they themselves may not yet see. And this is not a passive process. It invites us into the process. He begins to see deep into our story to bring about redemption, a setting free from the darkness. But please don't miss this. It does cost us something. I sat with an individual a few weeks ago. Dude who's done two tours in Iraq. 17 years marriage. All kinds of stuff in his head. He's now separated from his wife, three kids, grown kids that are cognizantly aware of everything going on, multiple affairs, wife has her own trauma that she's walking through, and he opens this story up to me the first time I have met him. You see, trust is the currency in the the kingdom, but I sat across the table from him, and the question was just asked to him, what do you want? The thing for him is, do I want to put in the work? And tears filled his eyes as he sat across the table from a bald dude he had never met in his life. And I don't know the answer to that question. I can't answer that question for him. It is like standing on the edge of the canyon. And it captivates you, but it also terrifies you. Now, imagine yourself standing on the edge of the canyon, except the canyon is your own story. And the question becomes, is how deep do you want to go? You see, God invites us in. I remember sitting on a train to one of the most beautiful cities in the world, Prague. Now, this sounds a lot more prettier than the trip actually was. I got my first kidney stone in that area for a 15-day mission trip, staying in a bunkhouse in the middle of nowhere, and that's a story for another day, all right? But if you've ever had a kidney stone, Lord have mercy, remove the stone, as the gospel writer says, all right? Remove that stone. But me and this gentleman, we struck up a conversation as I assumed he was having trouble understanding my English, but it was because he was having trouble which language to translate into. He was fluent in five languages, 80 plus years old. And so he said, I apologize. I'm thinking German, but I don't know whether to speak in French or English. I'm like, a problem I've never had, sir. (laughs) All right. And so we're sitting across the table, and then he asked me, he asked me this question. He says, what do you do? Now, for a pastor, this is a question that you really have to think about how to answer, all right? And I just told him, I said, I'm a pastor here visiting some friends. And he goes, oh, that's nice. I'm an atheist. And he talks about being heavily influenced by a man named Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, a German philosopher, okay? Now, I knew enough about Nietzsche to be dangerous, But I noticed my new friend had a camera, and so he was going to Prague to take pictures. And you may remember or have heard the Nietzsche quote when he says, God is dead. Now, you need to know the context of that quote. First of all, Nietzsche lost his father, a Lutheran preacher, before his fifth birthday. It was a very strict home. And Nietzsche was watching the way culture was going, as if everybody had become their own gods because of the enlightenment, what philosophy, what science was beginning to show. And so he tells this parable of a man walking the streets. Where is God? Where is God with this lantern? And then he says, God must be dead, for we have killed him. That's the original context of that. Of that phrase that oftentimes is very much misquoted and so the man on the train went on to tell me that he was taking photographs and I pulled a Nietzsche on him well if you're going to be a true atheist then what is the meaning of doing anything in Prague much less taking a picture and how do you get to define something as being beautiful because it's all meaningless And we began to strike up this conversation, and then he began, he said, I remember a song from when I was younger, and he could not recall the words, but he began to hum the melody, and I picked up that the song was Amazing Grace, and I said, I think the song you're talking about is Amazing Grace, and he looked at me, and he said, that's it, and I said, may I ask you a question? And he said, yes. And I said, when did grace stop being amazing? And tears just filled his eyes. The train then reached the station. You see, we sit in a train station with two sets of tracks coming through the same station. One set of tracks is the train of regret. And for many of us, it's way too easy to jump on that train. I've always said the shame train is always running. It's always running. But there's another train and another set of tracks that's the train of reflection. You see, many of us will look back on our own story with a lot of regret, but few of us actually reflect on some of the deepest, darkest places of our lives. And so we just jump on the train of regret Or better yet, we pretend there's no train rolling. To reflect is to begin to see our story with a bit more color and nuance. It requires us to go into the dark tunnel. It requires us to stand still and pause. It does indeed cost us something to walk through the pain of our own story, but you realize you are not alone. What you begin to understand is Emmanuel, God with us, has jumped on the train with you. Actually, he's been on the train the entire time inviting you to come on and to be seated next to him. And if we are willing, it will change us, but more importantly, it will heal our eyes and our memories. It will begin to change our perception because our proximity to the beautiful one is greater than maybe what it was before. Pastor John offers us an insight here with someone else's redemption story. You see, Mary Magdalene stands in the place many of us stand. She was a follower of Jesus for three years after being healed by the Jewish rabbi. And John wants the reader to pay attention to her eyes because she stood at the empty tomb with tear-filled eyes. Wondering who had taken her rabbi. And then catch this. What she then does is she sees this man. It's Jesus, but her eyes are filled with tears. She doesn't yet recognize him. And so she actually mistakes him to be the gardener. To which Jesus in his mind would say, You're actually on the right track. I am the gardener. I was with God in the beginning, and I am God in the flesh now. And so she sits with these tear-filled eyes, and he calls her by her original name in the Hebrew, which was Miriam. Miriam was the sister of Moses, and Miriam sings a song as the people of Israel had been rescued out of Egypt. It was their song. It was their anthem song. God has rescued his people. Jesus calls Mary by her original name, Miriam. You see, he is tapping into her own redemption story. And Miriam sits there with tear-filled eyes. John wants us to pay attention to the eyes. You see, her eyes filled with tears cannot recognize it as Jesus, or maybe Jesus cannot be recognized without tear-filled eyes. There's a profound scene from The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen this, but I encourage you to go watch this. And you're talking to a dude who is not really keen on Christian film, all right? Because I think it oftentimes is done with poor acting and tells the story in such an overt way that it doesn't really capture the meaning and the depth of the story but I believe the chosen has done this and one of the scenes is the one with Mary Magdalene you see Mary is approached by Nicodemus a religious leader who is seeking truth and he had attempted to minister to her in her past life but was not successful in her healing He sees she has been healed, but is not returning to her past. And the once look of malaise has become one of profound joy. And he asked her, Who healed you? And she said, He called me Mary. And she said, I am His, I am redeemed. And she goes, here is all I can tell you. I was one way, but now I am completely different. And I will spend the rest of my life knowing him. I sat at my kitchen table yesterday, weeping over this scene. And Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me. And this is an interesting phrase, almost shrewd for Jesus to make to his friend. She wants to cling to the way things used to be. She wants her rabbi back. Better yet, she wants him to stay. She fears becoming bitter, but Jesus promises her this will actually be better. Please hear me, the loss still hurts, but the hurt will begin to heal. I promise you. That intimate voice she had been given her full attention to these last three years would now occupy that space in her life that has kept her longing for so much more. It's as if the gardener once again sinks his hands deep into the earth and he breathes into her nostrils the very spirit of God. Listen to what Dostoevsky says. The Holy Spirit is the direct seizure, the grasping of beauty. Beauty will save us. Jesus wants her to see with his eyes, with his eyes, the beauty through the broken. This is why stories of redemption here and now matter. These bits of redemptive film point to the artist, the one who will ultimately wipe away our tears. Beauty is calling. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. We belong to beauty. This is Advent. That's what it's about. Let me pray for us as we step into a time of communion. Father, thank you. I feel like my eyes fill with tears just watching a sports commercial anymore. And so, Lord, you just, you're so gracious. You're so freakishly generous and, and radically loving and I don't know everybody's stories in the room. In fact, I only know just a few. But you know every single one. You're the author and truly the perfecter of our faith. And so, Father, may we just hand you the pen to begin rewriting these chapters that we have just wanted to close and wanted to suppress. And we long for the day and we wait for the day eagerly that all the sad things will indeed come untrue. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now it's interesting that communion is really celebrating, and that's a weird word, celebration when you think of what communion symbolizes because the bread symbolizes his body that has been broken and it symbolizes his blood, the juice symbolizes his blood that was spilled out. And I say this, I think every time I talk about communion, please don't ever take this for common. Don't ever, ever make this common. Don't take it for granted. If this is new for you and you're not yet, A follower of Jesus, you haven't really given your life over to him. I just would implore you to sit where you are and truly begin to see he is captivated with you. But it is an invitation. He won't ever cross our agency to step into your life. He invites us to be a part of that. And this kind of beauty is indeed costly, but it's beautiful. And so I pray that you take this time of communion together.